critically acclaimed CBS All Access original series The Good Fight is now streaming with a new season and a new fight. Christine Baranski is back as Diane Lockhart in a season that delivers mystery and intrigue. The question that everyone will be asking is, what is Memo 618? Join the fight by visiting cbs.com slash goodfight to start your free trial of CBS All Access. It has been incredibly frustrating to watch because states have sort of been left to play out the Hunger Games you know, on procuring swabs. I mean, literally, we have governors, my governor included, calling random people in China to try to get swabs off the back of a truck somewhere and get them here, only to find out then that perhaps they're not validated, they're not good for use. Same thing with PPE. I mean, I I just think that this administration is intransigent and cruel in how it's approached this pandemic. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. Our guest today, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, whose Seattle-based district has been particularly hard hit by the coronavirus, and whose leadership of progressives in the House of Representatives has earned her a place at the negotiating table as Congress tries to respond to the pandemic. Every day, She tells us she hears from constituents who are anxious and worried, both about the virus itself and by the economic devastation it has caused throughout the country. The reality here is that while people want to get back to work, the reality is we're not ready yet. We don't have the extensive testing, contact tracing and isolation in place. And you look at the White House and Donald Trump, you know, they're testing everybody. They're doing contact tracing and isolating. Well, if the White House is doing that for their folks, they should make sure that everybody in the country has that. And that is not the case right now. In just a few short years on Capitol Hill, Jayapal has earned a reputation for her savvy, strategic leadership of House progressives and for the history-making nature of her election as the first Indian American woman ever to serve in Congress. Her background is as an organizer for immigrant rights, civil rights, and a higher minimum wage. And while some of her opponents may say she's too strident, Jayapal brushes off those criticisms. I pity the poor men who are so afraid of our talents as women, because most of the time it's because of their insecurity and not because of anything that we have done. You know, if only they could, you know, we could all be as big as we really are able to be without people feeling like they get small because we are big. And now, here's my conversation with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Well, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us from your district in Washington state. Uh, Before we get started on everything happening in Congress, and there's uh, a lot to cover, I wanted to see if we could get a quick update on what's happening in your district, which is in the Seattle region and one of the earliest hit by the coronavirus. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Anna, for having me. It's so great to be with you. Our first case was the first case in the country, and it was diagnosed on January 21st. And so in many ways, our state has been at the forefront of leading the response, and a lot of other places have looked to us. Luckily, we have a fantastic governor, and we have a lot of great elected officials who took this seriously from the beginning. And we also have a public health system that in spite of a lot of federal disinvestment and austerity spending, we were able to at least keep a decent public health system going. So 
We were able to flatten the curve significantly by restrictions early on. We just, however, passed our 1,000th fatality, and we are still struggling with all the things that many other states are struggling with. We have flattened the curve, but the problem is we're still seeing hundreds of cases every day. And we don't have the testing, treatment, isolation capacity in place that we need to have even as we start to reopen slowly. So I think for my constituents, what I hear every day is they're devastated. You know, they're incredibly anxious. There are a lot of frontline workers who are still working without safety. A lot of people who still have not received a stimulus check our employment system is, I think, excellent, but the reality is there are too many people on unemployment, and so the unemployment insurance system is creaking and groaning under the weight of just too much too quickly. And so there are a lot of people who still haven't received their unemployment claims, even though we are better than other states. So people are saying to me, I'm getting kicked out of my home. I haven't received, you know, my unemployment. The stimulus check is not enough, even if I've gotten it. And I don't know how to think about life. That anxiety is palpable from the hundreds of calls I get every day. There's been a lot of criticism about kind of the fits and starts of how this administration has approached uh, not only getting PPE, but testing and just kind of advice for reopening the country. Yesterday, uh, the president made a lot of news over the fact that he said he was taking an untested drug that a lot of experts have said is, is unsafe. He's still not wearing a mask. How impactful do you think it is that the president is kind of on a different page than a lot of his health experts and what a lot of the experts around the country are saying about how to approach this crisis. It's it's enormous. It, it, this president has been intransigent about how he has approached this crisis, this pandemic. Everything from false information, whether it's about drugs, disinfectants, vaccines, completely ignoring public health, uh, railing on the CDC, which is our friend in this moment and needs all the backup possible, there is no question in my mind that if the president had taken a very different approach to this from the beginning, invoked the Defense Production Act immediately to push manufacturing of PPE, test supplies, all of those things that were desperately needed early on so that we weren't competing in a global marketplace for those same products, that we would be in a very different place. We would have expanded testing significantly. We would have had the PPE for frontline workers. States would have, you know, followed the lead and the guidance of the federal government, which is exactly what the federal government should be doing, is providing the leadership and the guidance to states so that they know what they should be doing and how they should go about both shuttering their economies and reopening when safe. None of that has happened. None of that. And it has been incredibly frustrating to watch because states have sort of been left to play out the Hunger Games you know, on procuring swabs. I mean, literally, we have governors, my governor included, calling random people in China to try to get swabs off the back of a truck somewhere and get them here, only to find out then that perhaps they're not validated, they're not good for use. Same thing with PPE. I mean, I, I just think that this administration is intransigent and cruel in how it's approached this pandemic. 
I want to shift gears a, a bit. You were in D.C. last week to vote on the HEROES Act and also proxy voting, so two kind of historic votes. But most Americans are still sheltering in place or slowly kind of, you know, reopening, uh, going, you know, kind of getting the go ahead to do limited activities outside of their homes. Uh, but you were flying across the country. I think there's a lot of curiosity about what that what that looks like, you know, how nervous you were. Uh, can you just walk us through a little bit about kind of how you prepare to be on a plane and what it was like? Yeah. Well, this is, um, you know, I guess the third time that I've flown across the country for a vote. And um, it has already changed dramatically. The first time we were flying back after the outbreak had really happened, nothing had really shut down. So the, the flights were quite full. We were all sitting next to each other. I had a mask, but I think I was one of the very few that did um, we had wipes that we wiped down the seats and the tray tables and the and the buckles um, just to be sure. The second time was a couple of weeks ago when we flew back for the interim package vote. And at that time, there were only about 20 people on the flight. Now, first of all, all the flights have been most of the flights have been canceled. So there's only one direct flight and there were only about 20 people on the flight and about 11 of us were members of Congress. At that time, the airlines hadn't mandated masks for anybody. Um, and so there were just some of us that were wearing masks, not everybody. And even the flight attendants at that time were not wearing masks. This time, there were many more people on the flight, maybe 50 people on the flight. Everyone was wearing a mask because it's now been mandated. It's been mandated by the airlines, by the way, not by the federal government, which is unfortunate. And so it was a little better in that sense. But, you know, I just have to say it is a dangerous thing to be flying across. You're touching all the same things. You're in closed circulation, closed air on the plane with a lot of people. And people are still far too cavalier about how close they come to you when you're walking in the airports, for example. And some of my friends, my colleagues, um, Katie Porter sent me a picture of the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, and it looked awful. I mean, everybody was just packed into the subway, uh, the train at the airport, and um, it didn't look like there was any physical distancing happening at all. Yeah, I just the anxiety and my anxiety as you tell the story is, is, is getting heightened. Um, there's been a ton of questions about whether the Capitol is prepared to safely reopen with 435 members of the House, their staff. Uh, you know, kind of giving some guidance, but whether or not members, some members, you know, are able to sleep in their offices still. Is that something you're concerned about? And have you taken any extra precautions just based on kind of what you're seeing and best practices that maybe aren't being forced upon you, but that you want to take to keep people safe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have taken a lot of precautions. We don't have, you know, we only have one, generally one staff member in the office if I'm in the office, but we're still telling everybody to telework, to work from home. And I don't want people coming in if I don't have to have them there. It's not safe. I don't think we're safe yet to, to go back to work. And I think that that's true in the capital. It's true in workplaces across the country. And I think that there are good procedures that have been put in place to limit the number of people in the chamber. You know, we were voting by group, uh, by alphabet, mm -hmm. so that and, and we went in one door and came out the other door. But, you know, people, it's a House floor. There are a lot of seats. It's difficult 
to physically distance completely, though I think that the steps that have been taken have been excellent. Um, I just think that, you know, at this point, it's not mandated that you wear a mask on the floor. And there were mostly Republicans who were not wearing masks when they walked into the elevator or when they came onto the floor. The elevators are relatively small. So really, you shouldn't have more than one person in an elevator. But there were at least three, sometimes four people in elevators because it's difficult for some of the members to use stairs. And if you're on the fifth floor or the sixth floor like I am, then it becomes even more difficult. Um, and so I just think that, you know, the reality here is that while people want to get back to work, and I think we should talk about why that is, because I think there are a few different reasons and some of them we can mitigate. The reality is we're not ready yet. We don't have the extensive testing, contact tracing and isolation in place. And you look at the White House and Donald Trump, you know, they're testing everybody. They're doing contact tracing and isolating. Well, if the White House is doing that for their folks, they should make sure that everybody in the country has that. And that is not the case right now. Um, that is not the case in the Capitol, but it's also not the case in workplaces across the country. And, and we're sending workers back when it's completely unsafe with no regard to their safety. I want to take a step back a bit. You've been through a lot of firsts. You were the first Indian American woman to serve in the House, the first woman to represent your district, and the first Asian American to represent Washington State in Congress. And the first person of color that Democrats have ever sent to Congress, actually. <laughs> so, talk, I mean, talk about that just in terms of, I mean, the historic nature of kind of all of those firsts and really kind of breaking down some barriers. Do you did you feel extra pressure? Did you know that this was you were kind of in that position or was it just kind of a, something that happened as as by by chance of, you know, your desire to, to run for office? I mean, I've always sort of been in that position. Um, you know, I came to the United States when I was 16 by myself as an immigrant. Um, I did not have uh, you know, my parents have never lived on the same continent continent as me since that time. And so, yes, there's always been real pressure to succeed because when your parents make that kind of a sacrifice and they were not wealthy, they had about 5,000 bucks in their bank account, they used all of it to send me here. I think you do feel that additional pressure to always succeed. And mostly that's a good thing. And sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a self-flagellating thing. <laughs> but, um, but yes, I think I've often been in that situation. The only person of color, the only woman of color. Um, when I was in the state Senate, I ran for the state Senate and served there for two years before coming to Congress. I was the only woman of color in the state Senate. And that's in a relatively, you know, what's thought of as a relatively liberal state. And so I take pride in that only because I think it provides a different way for other people to see their futures. You know, it isn't, um, of course, I'm proud of it for myself, but the real benefit is that I never want to be the last. And so how do I use this opportunity to help change that dynamic for other people? And I think so many people tell me that they see their futures differently because I am here. And that to me is a source of great pride. Um, I think that is a real reason to celebrate being a first because you're helping to change the vision of what's possible for other people's lives. 
Was it ever, it must, must have been lonely, I imagine, in some cases to be kind of the first. A lot of people say it's always easier, as you just said, to kind of see somebody before you, okay, you kind of kind of realize that next level of dream. But when you were going through those, either being in the state Senate or, or you know, kind of, kind of making your way up and chipping up that ladder, was it lonely? It is lonely. Yes, it is lonely. Um, but I think that a lot of leadership is lonely. If you are really providing true leadership, it often means that you're there before other people are there. I think that's true of some of the most important policies that I push. You know, I was fighting for immigration long before it was politically popular, even frankly, among Democrats. Um, I was fighting for a $15 minimum wage long before it was politically popular. I just think that leadership is lonely because if you are just following where there's a lot of people already, where there's, where there's a herd and you go, um, I mean, it's not that that isn't leadership. There is a form of leadership there. But for me, it's really about how do I use every day that I've been given privilege to be an American, honestly, um, you know, that's a privilege that not many people get around the world and many people seek. And so I have a very different sense of what my responsibility is to really use that and use the privilege that I have um, on many levels to fight for people whose voices are not at the table. That's what got me into politics. Um, that's what got me into community organizing. And, and that's, you know, and I just keep that very close in my heart, you know, thinking about the people who are really affected, whose voices aren't at the table, what would they say to me? What would they want me to fight for? Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit. So you founded an organization called Hate Free Zone following the 2001 September 11 attacks. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with the group, what was its goal? Um, well, originally it was formed right after 9-11 and it was not meant to be an organization, Anna. It was really a response to the hate crimes and discrimination that at the time... Arab Americans, Sikh Americans, and, and others were Muslim Americans were feeling in the wake of 9-11. And it very quickly transformed because the Patriot Act was passed within weeks of September 11th, as you might remember. And um, all of a sudden, we were seeing not just hate crimes, which were individual acts against other individuals, which is terrible, but we were seeing systemic discrimination by the federal government, the U.S. government, towards different populations simply because of where they were born or what their religion was. And so um, I sort of ended up springing into action um, and this organization emerged and we changed the name eight years later and uh, it became the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state. And I led it for 12 years. We early on took on marriage equality because even though it was an immigrant rights organization, I think we were able to push the boundaries of intersectional thinking that really immigrant rights was economic rights. It was labor rights. It was LGBTQ rights. I mean, we are immigrants are part of all of these things. And so we built some really incredible coalitions and the mission was to ensure justice for all, to really ensure that um, immigrants were able to fully engage in society and, and live with dignity and without discrimination. A lot of organizing around immigration is very siloed. You know, it's the Latinx community, the AAPI community, 
um, the black community, but ours was very, very intersectional. Well, you were certainly ahead of the curve uh, in terms of intersectionality. I mean, I feel like that's something we discuss a lot now, but, you know, uh, 10 years ago or more, that wasn't, you know, kind of how the framing of a lot of these debates and thinking about, you know, things from different perspectives. I want to ask, I mean, you've been on the front lines of those issues for a long time. How concerned are you about the rising xenophobia and hate in this country today? It's terrible. Um, It's terrible. It isn't that it's new in the sense that, you know, we have had, if you go back in the history of this country, I mean, everything from how, you know, slavery to um, Native, you know, how we've taken indigenous land to um, the ways in which we have, uh, you know, the Japanese internment, 120,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry in 1942 to, of course, 9-11 and then now. So it's not that it's new, but what is different with Trump in the White House is that the person that is in the top office of the land is actively using, and, and that also has been done before, by the way, but it's not as common for that person to actively use, particularly in recent history, um, to use that office to promote xenophobia and racism in such overt ways, um, to use the full force of the federal government to literally um, encourage a cruelty and a, and a hatred um, towards certain people. And so I think that is new. You know, in my mind, Trump is both a symptom and a cause of a lot of things. And uh, I, I think about this a lot, you know, because I think we have to be careful not to put Trump in a in a category of his own in the sense that many of these things have festered. They've erupted at various times. Um, and so it's not that they've never happened before. If you talk to any uh, black person, they will talk to you about the history of slavery or any indigenous person about what has happened to Native Americans. Um, but at the same time, I think it's also important to recognize that when you have somebody who is so actively using their power in the federal government to divide people and to bring out the worst in people, it makes a huge difference. And it has to, it has, to, it, you, it's very difficult to make progress on any level with that uh, kind of leadership. We'll be right back after this quick break. The critically acclaimed CBS All Access original series, The Good Fight, is now streaming with a new season and a new fight. Christine Baranski is back as Diane Lockhart, the woman who says what you're thinking and does what you wish you could do. In a season that delivers mystery and intrigue, the question that everyone will be asking is, what is Memo 618? Celebrated for its remarkable ensemble cast and hailed as wildly inventive, The Good Fight has been named the best show on TV by critics and fans alike. Join the fight by visiting cbs.com slash goodfight to start your free trial of CBS All Access. That's cbs.com slash goodfight to start your free trial today. One of the things that you've talked about is something that comes up in women rule conversations a lot, which is sexism and facing sexism in the workplace. Um, You've talked about it uh, in in regards to Congress. can you give us a little bit of the backstory there and, and and kind of how have you dealt with that in your career? And is this something you still feel like you're having to deal with? 
Yes, I'm definitely, I definitely have to deal with it um, for sure. As you know, it's, it's sort of baked into our structures, you know, it's baked into the way people see us. But I think, you know, you, you can't let that stop you. And the question is really, do you engage with every incident of sexism or do you engage, you know, and try to be a little bit more strategic? Now, sometimes, you don't even know what you're doing. I mean, I had, you know, I had early on um, this experience on the floor with uh, uh, Don Young, Congressman Don Young, mm-hmm. who, you know, I was I was debating a, 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 an amendment on the floor that he had around um, federal public lands and hunting on federal public lands. And um, he on the floor said, you know, called me young lady and literally said, you don't know a damn thing about what you're talking about. And uh, I just, I, it wasn't planned. Um, but I remembered, and because I think this is something we do when we're going through orientation, you know, maybe there are certain things that stick in our heads as women or women of color. One of them was Steny Hoyer telling me that you could um, ask somebody to take down their words if they were inappropriate on the floor, disrespectful on the floor. And so I did. I, I asked him to take down his words. And honestly, Anna, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know what the process was. What <laughs> I didn't know what would happen when I said those words. And um, as it turned out, I was able to get a public apology from Don Young, in part because I held my ground and that clip went viral. And there have been many of those that have happened to me. Um, you know, it got better in the, my second term because there were more women that came in with the, with that new class of the 116th. Um, but I think, you know, it's just something you have to constantly be aware of, but you also can't let it destroy you. I mean, I always say, like, I pity the poor men who are so afraid of our talents as women, because most of the time it's because of their insecurity and not because of anything that we have done. And, you know, if only they could, you know, we could all be as big as we really are able to be without people feeling like they get small because we are big. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of picking your battles, right? I mean, kind of, you know, uh, which is something I, I think we all have to deal with, right? And whether it's in, you're in the private sector or in office, you can't kind of go every go go after every single thing. But in those moments, you, you know, it's important to call people out for them, certainly, you know, if it's on that stage and on that level, because it did make a big deal. I remember it going viral. Um, and all of a sudden it was like, OK, the old boys club here in Washington can't just get away with maybe what they have in the past. No. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, even my first job out of college was in investment banking. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I worked in banking. I have a master's in business. And, you know, and, and there were there was one woman partner that I remember. And I remember she always used to talk very softly and nobody could hear her. And I wondered why she did that. And then I realized it was because when she talked really softly, people sort of ultimately stopped and listened, partly because she was in a position of power. But um, it forced people to kind of stop and listen to her. I thought that was interesting. So I've, you know, that's not really my style, but I've tried to pick up different <laughs> tips along the way um, because different women deal with it differently based on who they are and what they feel comfortable with. And, and I think the key thing is just to encourage everybody to embrace themselves and to embrace their power and not to back away from it because anyone else feels insecure about it. 
I think that's good advice. Well, before I let you go, I want to talk to you about the HEROES Act, the $3 trillion bill House Democrats voted on last week. There's uh, obviously been a lot of fodder criticism about it from maybe more of the progressive wing that it didn't go far enough. Criticism from moderates consider that it, it took the, you know, the taking the vote could hurt them in the election. Republicans just critical of the bill in general that, you know, it wasn't a serious, uh, you know, kind of bill to go to move forward with the next uh, coronavirus relief package. You helped negotiate parts of that bill, but then voted against it. Can you kind of walk us through your your thinking on that? Yeah, absolutely. So a um, couple things. One, it is urgent for us to respond. Absolutely urgent for us to respond. And again, intransigent of the White House or Republicans to suggest we don't need to. There is deep devastation and Congress not acting is really not an option. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, there were some good things in the package, and I'm grateful to the people who negotiated for those things. And some of them included things that were my priorities as well. But this takes me to my third point. I really believe that a proposal that originates in the Democratic House should have a very clear focus on the the things that we can do that are really going to solve um, or make a huge impact in the crisis that's facing us and that the scale has to be big enough. It's not the amount of money, by the way. I think the amount of money was fine. I could have spent more probably, but you know, I, I, it's, that's not the issue. The issue is what's, what solutions are we offering? We needed a solution around jobs, recovering paychecks and putting money consistently in people's pockets and protecting small businesses. Um, I had been pushing for my Paycheck Guarantee Act, uh, which is now called the Paycheck Recovery Act. We just introduced it today with 92 co-sponsors, including many, many moderates, because we Democrats should be the party of keeping workers in their jobs and not um, sending them off unto unemployment. If you do that, the second part of the solution is you can target the assistance that you need, whether it's rental assistance, stimulus checks, um, et cetera, to the people who need it the most, because most people now hopefully will be getting paychecks and that will take care of rent, that will take care of food on the table, that will provide some consistency for them and certainty around what they can do with their lives going forward. Then you target the other assistance to the people that need it the most. By the way, we, you know, the HEROES Act included a COBRA provision, which I know is important to some of our labor friends, but the Paycheck Guarantee Act would cover health care for everybody who had it before. And so you wouldn't need COBRA, which is very, very expensive. So I just really did not feel that um, in the end it was going to answer the letters and the calls that I get in from people who can't get their assistance from unemployment insurance because it's overwhelmed or because they don't qualify, who don't have health care. Um, to me, the package should have included those deep solutions that would have ensured health care for everyone. Uh, and, and I'm not talking about Medicare for all. I'm talking about all kinds of other ways you can do that. And also would have ensured that people could keep their jobs and that we could end mass unemployment or at least dramatically reduce it. That's what most countries around the world have done. And that's certainly what the United States of America should do, because we now have 
36 million Americans who have filed for unemployment in just the last eight weeks. And if we don't do something, we will be at 40 and 50% unemployment, and it will be incredibly difficult for um, the economy to recover. And frankly, all of the structural inequities around race and gender will be so baked in because those are the people that have the hardest time coming out of unemployment and finding a job because of the discrimination in the system. So I genuinely felt I couldn't vote for it. I want to ask, though, yeah, there's been some likening of the progressive wing of the House Democrats to the Freedom Caucus, uh, the conservative kind of group of Republicans. But there's been and we've asked this question in playbook, you know, kind of how progressives like yourself are willing to push party leaders in the House, but aren't willing to take those kind of more aggressive tactics that the Freedom Caucus did to kill bills or stop legislative process in order order to kind of enact their will on the chamber. Do you think, is there a, is there a time in the future where you as a leader of the progressives feel like you're going to kind of take more of those strong arm tactics? Or is that just not the style of politics that's within the Democratic Party? I always resist comparisons to the Freedom Caucus because I think the Freedom Caucus was a party of no and the Progressive Caucus is a party of yes. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, is it true that we need to be willing to flex our muscles, if you will? I mean, we've done it um, a few times with some success uh, when Nancy Pelosi was being elected Speaker of the House. We negotiated right. for some very important things. Not everybody understands how important they were, but you wouldn't see Katie Porter um, on the Financial Services Committee or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the Financial Services Committee if we hadn't negotiated to get freshmen onto those committees and to get a certain number of progressives onto all of these committees. Um, and so we have done that effectively. We did it around a budget fight as well, a budget caps fight. Um, and, you know, and I think that we just need to get a little bit more comfortable in fighting two, two things. Um, you know, really being united around one, uh, specific ask. I don't think we do that very well because progressives care about a lot of things. And so it becomes difficult to say, well, this is the one thing that if it's not in the bill, we won't vote for it. Um, right. And I, I think so that I think that's an issue. And I think the second issue is we do have to get comfortable with recognizing that power never concedes anything without a demand, as Frederick Douglass said. And there is no reason to change the way things are if you don't actually give a challenge to it. And it doesn't mean that you're taking on leadership in a negative way. That's not how I think about it. I think of Nancy Pelosi as being a master negotiator. And she thinks in terms of her votes, she is incredibly hardworking. She, she never sleeps and she's quite brilliant in, in, in any number of things. And one of them is the art of negotiation. And she understands power very well. She used it on her own as a young legislator coming to Congress, um, and, and standing up against leadership on AIDS funding. And so I think that people have to understand that it isn't, um, a slap in the face to leadership to take something on and to try to make it better. Sometimes they may even be looking for that every once in a while, though they'll never say it. Um, and so I just, I think we have to get better at that. And I think also the coordination amongst inside and outside is, um, difficult, particularly in times of crisis when things are moving fast. 
And, um, and so I think there's work to do, but we've, we've made tremendous gains as a progressive movement. Um, and we have pushed ideas that benefit all working Americans, um, forward. And without the progressive movement, that would not be the case. And so I hope that people look at these as learning opportunities and not as, uh, you know, kicking somebody and making them stay down. It's really how we learn. And sometimes you learn through failure as much as you do through success. Well, Congresswoman, you've given us uh, more time than I think I asked for, so I really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Have a great afternoon. Thank you so much, Anna, and thanks for everything you do. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.